Welcome to this Uvula Audio presentation of The Time Traders by Andrea Norton. Your narrator is Adam von Bueller. Volume 7 Chapter 13 Ross swayed against a guard, was fended off, and bounced against the wall as the man shouted words Ross could not understand. A determined roar from the leader brought a semblance of order, but it was plain that they had not been expecting this. Ross was hustled out of the room back to his cell. His guards were opening the cell door when a second shock was felt, and he was thrust into safekeeping with no ceremony. He half crouched against the questionable security of the wall, wading through two more twisting earth waves, both of which were accompanied or preceded by dull sounds. Bombing. That last wrench was really bad. Ross found himself lying on the floor, feeling tremors rippling along the earth. His stomach knotted convulsively with a fear unlike any he had known before. It was as if the very security of the world had been jerked from under him. But that last explosion, if it was an explosion, appeared to be the end. Ross sat up gingerly after several long moments, during which no more shocks moved the floor and walls. A line of light marked the door, showing cracks where none had previously existed. Ross, not yet ready to try standing erect, was heading toward it on his hands and knees when a sharp noise behind him brought him to a stop. There was no light to see by, but he was certain that the scrape of metal against metal sounded from the far side of the wall. He crawled back and put his ear to the surface. Now he heard not only that scraping, but an undercurrent of clicks, chippings. Under his exploring hands, the surface remained as smooth as ever, however. Then suddenly, perhaps a foot from his head, there sounded a rip of metal. The wall was being holed from the other side. Ross caught a flicker of very weak light, and moving in it was the point of a tool pulling at the smooth surface of the wall. It broke away with a brittle sound, and a hand holding a light reached through the aperture. Ross wondered if he should catch that wrist, but the hope that the digger might just possibly be an ally kept him motionless. After the hand with the light whipped back beyond the wall, a wide section gave away, and a hunched figure crawled through, followed by a second. In the limited glow, he saw the first tunneler clearly enough. Asha! Ross was unprepared for what followed his cry. The lean brown man moved with a panther's striking speed, and Ross was forced back. A hand like a steel ring on his throat shut the breath away from his bursting lungs. The other's muscular body held him flat in spite of his struggles. The light of the small flash 
glowed inches beyond his eyes as he fought to fill his lungs. Then the hand on his throat was gone, and he gasped, a little dizzy. Murdoch, what are you doing? Ash's clipped voice was muffled by another sudden explosion. This time the earth tremors not only hurled them from their feet, but seemed to run along the walls and across the ceiling. Ross, burying his face in the crook of his arm, could not rid himself of the fear that the building was being slowly twisted into scrap. When the shock was over, he raised his head. What's going on? he heard McNeil ask. Attack. That was Ash. But why and by whom? Don't ask me. You are a prisoner, I suppose, Murdoch? Yes, sir. Ross was glad that his voice sounded normal enough. He heard someone sigh and guessed it was McNeil. Another digging party. There was tired disgust in that. I don't understand. Ross appealed to that section of the dark where Ash had been. Have you been here all the time? Are you trying to dig your way out? I don't see how you can cut out of this glacier that we're parked under. Glacier? Ash's exclamation was as explosive as the tremors. So we're inside a glacier. That explains it. Yes, we've been here. On ice, McNeil commented and then laughed. Glacier, ice, that's right, isn't it? We're collaborating, Ash continued, supplying our dear friends with a lot of information they already have and some flights of fancy they never dreamed about. However, they didn't know we had a few surprise packets of our own strewn about. It's amazing what the boys back at the project can pack away in a belt or between layers of hide in a boot. So we've been engaged in some research of our own. But I didn't have any escape gadgets. Ross was struck by the unfairness of that. No, Ash agreed, his voice even and cold. They are not entrusted to first-run men. You might slip up and use them at the wrong moment. However, you appear to have done fairly well. The heat of Ross's rising anger was chilled by the noise which cracked over their heads, ground to them through the walls, flattened and threatened them. He had thought those first shocks the end of this ice burrow and the world. He knew that this one was. And the silence that followed was as threatening in its way as the clamor had been. Then there was a shout, a shriek. The space of light near the cell door was widening as that barrier broken from its lock, swung open slowly. The fear of being trapped sent the men in that direction. Out! Ross was ready enough to respond to that order, but they were stopped by a crackle of sound that could only be one thing, rapid-fire guns. Somewhere in this warren a fight was in progress. Ross, remembering the arrogant face of the bald ship's officer, wondered if this was not an attack in force, the aliens against the looting reds. If so, would the ship people distinguish between those found here? He feared not. The room outside was clear, but not for long. As they lay watching, two men backed in, then whirled to stare at each other. A voice roared from beyond, as if ordering them back to some post— one of them took a step forward in reluctant obedience, 
but the other grabbed his arm and pulled him away. They turned to run, and an automatic cracked. The man nearest Ross gave a queer little cough and folded forward to his knees, sprawling on his face. His companion stared at him wildly for an instant, and then skidded into the passage beyond, escaping by inches a shot which clipped the door as he lunged through it. No one followed, for outside there was a crescendo of noise, shouting, cries of pain, an unidentifiable hissing. Ash darted into the room, taking cover by the body. Then he came back, the fellow's gun in his hand, and with a jerk of his head summoned the other two. He motioned them on in a direction away from the sounds of battle. I don't get all this, McNeil commented as they reached the next passage. What's going on? Mutiny? Or have our boys gotten through? It must be the ship people, Ross answered. What ship? Ash caught him up swiftly. The big one the Reds have been looting. Ship? echoed McNeil. And where did you get that rig? In the bright light, it was easy to see Ross's alien dress. McNeil fingered the elastic material wonderingly. From the ship, Ross returned impatiently. But if the ship people are attacking, I don't think they will notice any difference between us and the Reds. There was a burst of ear-splitting sound. For the third time, Ross was thrown from his feet. This time the burrow lights flickered, dimmed, and went out. Oh, fine, commented McNeil bitterly out of the dark. I never did care for blind man's buff. The transfer plate, Ross clung to his own plan of escape. If we can reach that. The light which had served Ash and McNeil in their tunneling clicked on. Since the earth shocks appeared to be over for a while, they moved on with Ash in the lead and McNeil bringing up the rear. Ross hoped Ash knew the way. The sound of fighting had died out, so one side or the other must have gained the victory. They might have only a few moments left to pass undetected. Ross's sense of direction was fairly acute, but he could not have gone so unerringly to what he sought as Ash did. Only, he did not lead them to the room with the glowing plate, and Ross stifled a protest as they came instead to a small record room. On a table were three spools of tape, which Ash caught up avidly, thrusting two in front of his baggy tunic, passing the third to McNeil. Then he sped about, trying the cupboards on the walls, but all were locked. His hand falling from the last latch, Ash came back to the door where Ross waited. To the plate, Ross urged. Ash surveyed the cupboards once more regretfully. If we could just have ten minutes here. McNeil snorted. Listen, you may yearn to be the filling in an ice sandwich, but I don't. Another shock and we'll be buried so deep even a drill couldn't find us. Let's get out now. The kid is right about that. If we still can. Once more, Ash took the lead, and they wove through ghostly rooms to what must have been the heart of the post the transfer point. To Ross's unvoiced relief, the plate was glowing. He had been nagged by the fear that when the lights blew out, the transfer plate might also have been affected. He jumped for the plate. Neither Ash nor McNeil wasted time in joining him there. As they clung together, 
there was a cry from behind them, underlined by a shot. Ross, feeling Ash sag against him, caught him in his arms. By the reflected glow of the plate, he saw the red leader of the post, and behind him, his hairless face hanging oddly bodiless in the gloom, was the alien. Were those two now allies? Before Ross could be sure that he had really seen them, the racking of space-time caught him and the rest of the room faded away. Free! Get a move on! Ross glanced across Ash's bowed shoulders to McNeil's excited face. The other was pulling at Ash, who was only half-conscious. A stream of blood from a hole in his bare shoulder soaked the upper edge of his beaker tunic, but as they steadied him between them, he gained some measure of awareness and moved his feet as they pulled him off the plate. Well, they were free if only for a few seconds, and there was no reception committee waiting for them. Ross gave thanks silently for those two small favors. But if they were now returned to the Bronze Age village, they were still in enemy territory. With Ash wounded, the odds against them were so high it was almost hopeless. Working hurriedly with strips torn from McNeil's kilt, they managed to stop the flow of blood from Ash's wound. Although he was still groggy, he was fighting, driven by the fear which whipped them all. Time was one of their foremost enemies. Ross, Ash's gun in hand, kept watch on the transfer plate, ready to shoot at anything appearing there. That will have to do, Ash pulled free from McNeil. We must move. He hesitated, and then, pulling the spools of tape from his blood-stained tunic, passed them to McNeil. You'd better carry these. All right, the other answered almost absently. Move! The force of that order from Ash sent them into the corridor beyond. The plate! But the plate remained clear, and Ross noted that they must have returned to the proper time, for the walls about them were the logs and stone of the village he remembered. Someone coming through? Should be. Soon. They fled, the hide boots of the other two making only the faintest whisper of sound, Ross's foam-soled feet none at all. He could not have found the door to the outer world, but again Ash guided them, and only once did they have to seek cover. At last they faced a barred door. Ash leaned against the wall, McNeil supporting him, as Ross pulled free the locking beam. They let themselves out into the night. Which way? McNeil asked. To Ross's surprise, Ash did not turn to the gate in the outer stockade. Instead, he gestured at the mountain wall in the opposite direction. They'll expect us to try for the valley pass, so we had better go up the slope there. That has the look of a tough climb, ventured McNeil. Ash stirred. When it becomes too tough for me, his voice was dry. I shall say so. Never fear. He started out with some of his old ease of movement, but his companions closed in on either side, ready to offer aid. Ross often wondered later if they could have won free of the village on their own efforts that night. He was sure their resolution would have been equal to the attempt, but their escape would have depended upon a fabulous run of luck such as men seldom encounter. As it was, they had just reached a pool of shadow beside a small hut some two buildings away from the one they had fled, when the fireworks began. 
As if on signal, the three fugitives threw themselves flat. From the roof of the building at the center of the village, a pencil of brilliant green light pointed straight up into the sky, and around that spear of radiance, the roof sprouted tongues of more natural red and yellow flames. Figures shot from the doors as the fire lapped down the peak of the roof. Now, in spite of the rising clamor, Ash's voice carried to his two companions. The three sprinted for the palisade, mingling with bewildered men who ran out of the other cabins. The waves of fire washed on, providing light, too much light. Ash and McNeil could pass as part of the crowd, but Ross's unusual clothing might be easily marked. Others were running for the wall. Ross and McNeil boosted Ash to the top, saw him over in safety. McNeil followed. Ross was just reaching to draw himself up when he was enveloped in a beam of light. A high, screeching call, unlike any shout he had heard, split the clamor. Frantically, Ross tried for a hold, knowing that he was presenting a perfect target for those behind. He gained the top of the stockade, looked down into a black block of shadow, not knowing whether Ash and McNeil were waiting for him or had gone ahead. Hearing that strange cry again, Ross leaped blindly out into the darkness. He landed badly, hitting hard enough to bruise, but thanks to the skill he had learned for parachuting, he broke no bones. He got to his feet and blundered on in the general direction of the mountain Ash had picked as their goal. There were others coming over the wall of the village and moving through the shadows, so he dared not call out for fear of alerting the enemy. The village had been set in the widest part of the valley. Behind its stockade, the open ground narrowed swiftly, like the point of a funnel, and all fugitives from the settlement had to pass through that channel to escape. Ross's worst fear was that he had lost contact with Ash and McNeil, and that he would never be able to pick up their trail in the wilderness ahead. Thankful for the dark suit he wore, which was protective covering in the night, he twice ducked into the brush to allow parties of refugees to pass him. Hearing them speak the guttural clicking speech he had learned from Ulfa's people, Ross deduced that they were innocent of the village's real purpose. These people were convinced they had been attacked by night demons. Perhaps there had only been a handful of reds in that hidden retreat. Ross pulled himself up a hard climb, and pausing to catch his breath, looked back. He was not overly surprised to see figures moving leisurely about the village examining the cabins, perhaps in search of the inhabitants. Each of those searchers was clad in a form-fitting suit that matched his own, and their bulbous, hairless heads gleamed white in the firelight. Ross was astonished to see that they passed straight through walls of flame, apparently unconcerned and unsinged by the heat. The human beings trapped in the town wailed and ran, or lay and beat their heads and hands on the ground, supine before the invaders. Each captive was dragged back to a knot of aliens near the main building. Some were hurled out again into the dark, unharmed. A few others were retained. A sorting of prisoners was plainly in progress. There was no question that the ship people had followed through into this time, and that they had their own arrangements for the Reds. Ross had no desire to learn the particulars. He started climbing again, 
finding the pass at last. Beyond, the ground fell away again, and Ross went forward into the full darkness of the night with a vast surge of thankfulness. Finally, he stopped simply because he was too weary, too hungry to keep on his feet without stumbling, and a fall in the dark on these heights could be costly. Ross discovered a small hollow behind a stunted tree and crept into it as best he could, his heart laboring against his ribs, a hot stab of pain cutting into his side with every breath he drew. He awoke all at once with the snap of a fighting man who is alert to ever-present danger. A hand lay warm and hard over his mouth, and above it his eyes met McNeil's. When he saw that Ross was awake, McNeil withdrew his hand. The morning sunlight was warm about them. Moving clumsily because of his stiff, bruised body, Ross crawled out of the hollow. He looked around, but McNeil stood there alone. Ash? Ross questioned him. McNeil, showing a haggard face covered with several days' growth of rusty brown beard, nodded his head toward the slope. Fumbling inside his kilt, he brought out something clenched in his fist and offered it to Ross. The latter held out his palm, and McNeil covered it with a handful of coarse ground grain. Just to look at the stuff made Ross long for a drink, but he mouthed it and chewed, getting up to follow McNeil down into the tree-grown lower slopes. It's not good, McNeil spoke jerkily, using beaker speech. Ash is out of his head some of the time. That hole in his shoulder is worse than we thought it was, and there's always the threat of infection. This whole wood is full of people flushed out of that blasted village. Most of them, all I've seen, are natives, but they have it firmly planted in their minds now that there are devils after them. If they see you wearing that suit... I know, and I'd strip if I could, Ross agreed. But I'll have to get other clothing first. I can't run bare in this cold. That might be safer, McNeil growled. I don't know just what happened back there, but it certainly must have been plenty. Ross swallowed a very dry mouthful of grain, and then stooped to scoop up some leftover snow in the shadow of a tree root. It was not as refreshing as a real drink, but it helped. You said Ash is out of his head. What do we do for him, and what are your plans? We have to reach the river somehow. It drains to the sea and at its mouth we are supposed to make contact with the sub. The proposal sounded impossible to Ross, but so many impossible things had happened lately he was willing to go along with the idea, as long as he could. Gathering up more snow, he stuffed it into his mouth before he followed the already disappearing McNeil. Chapter 14 That's my half of it. The rest of it you know. Ross held his hands close to the small fire sheltered in the pit he had helped dig and flexed his cold-numbed fingers in the warmth. From across the handful of flames, Ash's eyes, too bright in a fever-flushed face, watched him demandingly. The fugitives had taken cover in an angle where the massed remains of an old avalanche provided a cave pocket. McNeil was off scouting in the gray drizzle of the day, and their escape from the village was now some forty-eight hours behind them. So the crackpots were right, after all. They only had their times mixed. Ash shifted on the bed of brush and leaves they had raked together for his comfort. I don't understand. 
flying saucers. Ash returned with an odd little laugh. It was a wild possibility, but it was on the books from the start. This certainly will make Kilgaris turn red. Flying saucers? Ash must be out of his head from the fever, Ross supposed. He wondered what he should do if Ash tried to get up and walk away. He could not tackle a man with a bad hole in his shoulder, nor was he certain he could wrestle Ash down in a real fight. That globe ship was never built on this world. Use your head, Murdoch. Think about your furry-faced friend and the baldy with him. Did either look like normal Terrans to you? But a spaceship? It was something that had so long been laughed to scorn. When men had failed to break into space after the initial excitement of the satellite launchings, spaceflight had become a matter for jeers. On the other hand, there was the evidence collected by his own eyes and ears, his own experience. The services of the lifeboat had been techniques outside of his experience. This was insinuated once. Ash was lying flat now, gazing speculatively up at the projection of logs and earth which made them a partial roof, along with a lot of other bright ideas, by a gentleman named Charles Fort, who took a lot of pleasure in pricking what he considered to be vastly overinflated scientific pomposity. He gathered together four bookloads of reported incidents of unexplainable happenings, which he dared the scientists of his day to explain, and one of his bright suggestions was that such phenomena as the vast artificial earthworks found in Ohio and Indiana were originally thrown up by space castaways to serve as SOS signals. An intriguing idea, and now perhaps we may prove it true. But if such spaceships were wrecked on this world, I still don't see why we didn't find traces of them in our own time. Because that wreck you explored was bedded in a glacial era. Do you have any idea how long ago that was, counting from our own time? There were at least three glacial periods, and we don't know in which one the Reds went visiting. That age began about a million years before we were born and the last of the ice ebbed out of New York State some 38,000 years ago, boy. That was the early Stone Age, reckoning it by the scale of human development, with an extremely thin population of the first real types of man clinging to a few warmer fringes of wilderness. Climactic changes, geographical changes, all altered the face of our continents. There was a sea in Kansas. England was part of Europe. So even though as many as fifty such ships were lost here, they could all have been ground to bits by the ice flow, buried miles deep in quakes, or rusted away generations before the first really intelligent man arrived to wonder at them. Certainly there couldn't be too many such wrecks to be found. What do you think this planet was? A flypaper to attract them? But if ships crashed here once... Why didn't they later, when men were better able to understand them? Ross countered. For several reasons. All of them possible and able to be fitted into the fabric of history as we know it on this world. Civilizations rise, exist, and fall, each taking with it into the limbo of forgotten things some of the discoveries which made it great. How did the Indian civilizations of the New World learn to harden gold into a usable point for a cutting weapon? What was the secret of building possessed by the ancient Egyptians? 
Today you will find plenty of men to argue these problems and half a hundred others. The Egyptians once had a well-traveled trade route to India. Bronze Age traders opened up roads down into Africa. The Romans knew China. Then came an end to each of these empires, and those trade routes were forgotten. To our European ancestors of the Middle Ages, China was almost a legend, and the fact that the Egyptians had successfully sailed around the Cape of Good Hope was unknown. Suppose our space voyagers represented some star-born confederacy or empire which lived, rose to its highest point, and fell again into planet-bound barbarism, all before the first of our species painted pictures on a cave wall. Or take it that this world was an unlucky reef on which too many ships and cargoes were lost, so that our whole solar system was posted, and skippers of starships thereafter avoided it. Or they might even have had some rule that when a planet developed a primitive race of its own, it was to be left strictly alone until it discovered spaceflight for itself. Yes, every one of Ash's suppositions made good sense, and Ross was able to believe them. It was easier to think that both Furryface and Baldy were inhabitants of another world than to think their kind existed on this planet before his own species was born. But how did the Reds locate that ship? Unless that information is on the tapes we were able to bring along, we shall probably never know, Ash said drowsily. I might make one guess. The Reds have been making an all-out effort for the past hundred years to open up Siberia. In some sections of that huge country there have been great climatic changes, almost overnight in the far past. Mammoths have been discovered frozen in the ice with half-digested tropical plants in their stomach. It's as if the beasts were given some deep-freeze treatment instantaneously. If in their excavations the Reds came across the remains of a spaceship, remains well enough preserved for them to realize what they had discovered, they might start questing back in time to find a better one intact at an earlier date. That theory fits everything we know now. But why would the aliens attack the Reds now? No ship's officers ever thought gently of pirates. Ash's eyes closed. There were questions, a flood of them, that Ross wanted to ask. He smoothed the fabric on his arm, that stuff which clung so tightly to his skin, yet kept him warm without any need for more covering. If Ash were right, on what world, what kind of world, had that material been woven, and how far had it been brought that he could wear it now? Suddenly McNeil slid into their shelter and dropped two hairs at the edge of the fire. How goes it? he said, as Ross began to clean them. Reasonably well, Ash, his eyes still closed, replied to that before Ross could. How far are we from the river, and do we have company? About five miles, if we had wings, McNeil answered in a dry tone. And we have company all right, lots of it. That brought Ash up, leaning forward on his good elbow. What kind? Not from the village, McNeil frowned at the fire which he fed with economic handfuls of sticks. Something's happening on this side of the mountains. It looks as if there's a mass migration in progress. I counted five family clans on their way west, all in just this one morning. The village refugees' stories about devils might send them packing, 
Ash mused. Maybe. But McNeil did not sound convinced. The sooner we head downstream, the better. And I hope the boys will have that sub waiting where they promised. We do possess one thing in our favor. The spring floods are subsiding. And the high water should have plenty of raft material. Ash lay back again. We'll make those five miles tomorrow. McNeil stirred uneasily, and Ross, having cleaned and spitted the hairs, swung them over the flames to broil. Five miles in this country,' the younger man observed, "'is a pretty good day's march,' and he did not add, as he wanted to, "'for a well man.' "'I will make it,' Ash promised, and both listeners knew that as long as his body would obey him, he meant to keep that promise.' They also knew the futility of argument. Ash proved to be a prophet to be honored on two counts. They did make the trek to the river the next day, and there was a wealth of raft material marking the high-water level of the spring flood. The migrations McNeil had reported were still in progress, and the three men hid twice to watch the passing of small family clans. Once a respectably-sized tribe, including wounded men, marched across their route, seeking a ford at the river. "'They've been badly mauled,' McNeil whispered as they watched the people huddled along the water's edge, while scouts cast upstream and down, searching for a ford. When they returned with the news that there was no ford to be found, the tribesmen then sullenly went to work with flint axes and knives to make rafts. "'Pressure. They are on the run.' Ash rested his chin on his good forearm and studied the busy scene. These are not from the village. Notice the dress and the red paint on their faces. They're not like Ulfa's kin, either. I wouldn't say they were local at all. Reminds me of something I saw once. Animals running before a forest fire. They can't all be looking for new hunting territory, McNeil returned. Red sweeping them out, Ross suggested. Or could the ship people? Ash started to shake his head and then winced. I wonder. The crease between his level brows deepened. The axe people. His voice was still a whisper, but it carried a note of triumph, as if he had just fitted some stubborn jigsaw piece into its proper place. Axe people? Invasion of another people from the east. They turned up in prehistory about this period. Remember, Webb spoke of them. They used axes for weapons and tamed horses. Tartars! McNeil was puzzled. This far west? Not Tartars, no. You needn't expect those to come boiling out of Middle Asia for some thousands of years yet. We don't know too much about the Axe people, save that they moved west from the interior plains. Eventually they crossed to Britain... Perhaps they were the ancestors of the Celts who loved horses, too. But in their time, they were a tidal wave. The sooner we head downstream, the better. McNeil stirred restlessly. But they knew that they must keep to cover until the tribesmen below were gone. So they lay in hiding another night, witnessing on the next morning the arrival of a smaller party of the red-painted men, again with wounded among them. At the coming of this rear guard... The activity on the riverbank rose close to frenzy. The three men out of time were doubly uneasy. It was not for them to merely cross the river. 
they had to build a raft which would be water-worthy enough to take them downstream, to the sea if they were lucky, and to build such a sturdy raft would take time, time they did not have now. In fact, McNeil waited only until the last tribal raft was out of bowshot before he plunged down to the shore, Ross at his heels. Since they lacked even the stone tools of the tribesmen, they were at a disadvantage, and Ross found he was hands and feet for Ash, working under the other's close direction. Before night closed in, they had a good beginning and two sets of blistered hands, as well as aching backs. When it was too dark to work any longer, Ash pointed back over the track they had followed. Marking the mountain pass was a light. It looked like fire, and if it was, it must be a big one for them to be able to sight it across this distance. Camp? McNeil wondered. Must be, Ash agreed. Those who built that blaze are in such numbers that they don't have to take precautions. Will they be here by tomorrow? Their scouts might, but this is early spring and forage can't have been too good on the march. If I were the chief of that tribe, I'd turn aside into the meadowland we skirted yesterday and let the herds graze for a day, maybe more. On the other hand, if they need water... They will come straight ahead, McNeil finished grimly, and we can't be here when they arrive. Ross stretched, grimacing at the twinge of pain in his shoulders. His hands smarted and throbbed, and this was just the beginning of their task. If Ash had been fit, they might have trusted to logs for support and swum downstream to hunt a safer place for their shipbuilding project. But he knew that Ash could not stand such an effort. Ross slept that night mainly because his body was too exhausted to let him lie awake and worry. Roused in the earliest dawn by McNeil, they both crawled down to the water's edge and struggled to bind stubbornly resisting saplings together with cords twisted from bark. They reinforced them at crucial points with some strings torn from their kilts and strips of rabbit hide saved from their kills of the past few days. They worked with hunger gnawing at them, having no time now to hunt. When the sun was well westward, they had a clumsy craft which floated sluggishly. Whether it would answer to either pole or improvised paddle, they could not know until they tried it. Ash, his face flushed and his skin hot to the touch, crawled on board and lay in the middle, on the thin heap of bedding they had put there for him. He eagerly drank the water they carried to him in cupped hands and gave a little sigh of relief, as Ross wiped his face with wet grass, muttering something about Calgary's which neither of his companions understood. McNeil shoved off, and the bobbing craft spun around dizzily as the current pulled it free from the shore. They made a brave start, but luck deserted them before they had gotten out of sight of the spot where they embarked. Striving to keep them in mid-current, McNeil pulled furiously, but there were too many rocks and snagged trees projecting from the banks. Sharing that sweep of water with them, and coming up fast, was a full-sized tree. Twice its mat of branches caught on some snag, holding it back, and Ross breathed a little more freely, but it soon tore free again and rolled on, as menacing as a battering ram. Get closer to shore, Ross shouted the warning. Those great twisted roots seemed aimed straight at the raft, and he was sure if that mass struck them fairly they would not have a chance. He dug in with his own pole, but his hasty push did not meet bottom. 
the stake in his hands plunged into some pothole in the hidden riverbed. He heard McNeil cry out as he toppled into the water, gasping as the murky liquid flooded his mouth, choking him. Half-dazed by the shock, Ross struck out instinctively. The training at the base had included swimming, but to fight water in a pool under controlled conditions was far different from fighting death in a river of icy water when one had already swallowed a sizable quantity of that flood. Ross had a half-glimpse of a dark shadow. Was it the edge of the raft? He caught at it desperately, skinning his hands on rough bark, dragged on by it. The tree! He blinked his eyes to clear them of water, to try to see. But he could not pull his exhausted body high enough out of the water to see past the screen of roots. He could only cling to the small safety he had won, and hope that he could rejoin the raft somewhere downstream. After what seemed like a very long time, he wedged one arm between two water-washed roots, sure that the support would hold his head above the surface. The chill of the stream struck at his hands and head, but the protection of the alien clothing was still effective, and the rest of his body was not cold. He was simply too tired to rest himself free and trust again to the haphazard's chance of making shore through the gathering dusk. Suddenly, a shock jarred his body, and strained the arm he had thrust among the roots, wringing a cry out of him. He swung around and brushed footing under the water. The tree had caught on a shore snag. Pulling loose from the roots, he floundered on his hands and knees, falling afoul of a mass of reeds whose roots were covered with stale-smelling mud. Like a wounded animal, he dragged himself through the ooze to higher land, coming out upon an open meadow flooded with moonlight. For a while he lay there, his cold, sore hands under him, plastered with mud and too tired to move. The sound of a sharp barking aroused him, an imperative, summoning bark, neither belonging to a wolf nor a hunting fox. He listened to it dully, and then, through the ground upon which he lay, Ross felt as well as heard the pounding of hoofs. Hoofs! Horses! Horses from over the mountains! Horses which might mean danger! His mind seemed as dull and numb as his hands, and it took quite a long time for him to fully realize the menace horses might bring. Getting up, Ross noticed a winged shape sweeping across the disk of the moon like a silent dart. There was a single despairing squeak out of the grass about a hundred feet away, and the winged shape again rose with its prey. Then the barking sound once more. Eager, excited barking. Ross crouched back on his heels and saw a smoky brand of light moving along the edge of the meadow where the band of trees began. Could it be a herd guard? Ross knew he had to head back toward the river, but he had to force himself on the path, for he did not know whether he dared enter the stream again. But what would happen if they hunted him with the dog? Confused memories of how water-spoiled scent spurred him on. Having reached the rising bank he had climbed so laboriously before, Ross miscalculated and tumbled back, rolling down into the mud of the reed bed. Mechanically, he wiped the slime from his face. The tree was still anchored there. By some freak, the current had rammed its rooted end up on a sand spit. Above in the meadow, the barking sounded very close, and now it was answered by a second canine belling. Ross wormed his way back through the reeds to the patch of water between the tree and the bank. His few poor efforts at escape were almost half-consciously taken. He was too tired to really care now. 
Soon he saw a four-footed shape running along the top of the bank, giving tongue. It was then joined by a larger and even more vocal companion. The dogs drew even with Ross, who wondered dully if the animals could sight him in the shadows below, or whether they only scented his presence. Had he been able, he would have climbed over the log and taken his chances in the open water. But now he could only lie where he was, the tangle of roots between him and the bank serving as a screen, which would be little enough protection when men came with torches. Ross was mistaken, however, for his worm's progress across the reed bed had liberally besmeared his dark clothing and masked the skin of his face and hands, giving him better cover than any he could have wittingly devised. Though he felt naked and defenseless, the men who trailed the hounds to the river bank, thrusting out the torch over the edge to light the sand spit, saw nothing but the trunk of the tree wedged against a mound of mud. Ross heard a confused murmur of voices broken by the clamor of the dogs. Then the torch was raised out of line with his dazzled eyes. He saw one of the indistinct figures above cuff away a dog and move off, calling the hounds after it. Reluctantly, still barking, the animals went. Ross, with a little sob, subsided limply in the uncomfortable net of roots, still undiscovered. <laughs>